Hello again, everyone. It's Ken Meyer. Welcome to this edition of City Talk. The one way to describe the gentleman that's sitting across from me can be summed up in one word, class. And he is one of the new inductees of the Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame, Listo Fisher. Well, you, you didn't say lower, middle, or no <laughs> class. Yeah, oh, I mean, you, upper. You could, you could modify her on there somewhere. <laughs> you don't need it, my what friend. What a pleasure to see you, my oh, friend. You know, what a pleasure. I, I feel the same way. I hadn't seen you in so many years, and then yeah. running into it at that, that luncheon, it's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's time, time it's froze. It's been a while. And oh. uh, as always, way back then and even now, it is it is great seeing you. And you are class, upper from well, the word you. go. Thank you. Thank you so um, much. But let's go back. Okay. Let's go back. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up uh, in New York City, although I wasn't born there. Um, I was born in uh, Colón, Panama. Ah. And uh, Colón is the city on the Atlantic side of the canal, if you want to orient yourself mentally. Mm-hmm. Panama City is the city on the, on the Pacific side. And in in the years since since my family left, um, Panama City has gotten all the development. There, there, there are derricks and skyscrapers being built all over Panama City. Colón, on the other hand, not so much. So so we left there and we came to New York and um, and I went to high school, um, college, and then to a broadcasting school in New York uh, before before heading for the Midwest. Where did you go to? What was the broadcasting school? I went to the New York City School of Broadcasting and Announcing, and it was in the old um, Ed Sullivan Theater building on, oh on 52nd Street and Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it was on the seventh or eighth floor. Uh, and it was run by a guy who used to work for Mutual News, whose name I can't now remember. I was going to say, I, yeah. I bet it's somebody I've heard of. It probably is, but I, 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 <laughs> Mike something. I can't remember his name. Been a lot of years. Is that when you fell in love with Mel Allen, <laughs> <laughs> like I did? I, I actually, uh, my hero on radio in New York was was Dan Ingram. Ah, um, Dan I, Ingram. Yeah. I, I just found Dan to be so uh, interesting. And, and and in those days, when when you listen to radio, you listen for everything. You listen for commercials. You listen for the music. You listen for news. Um, and uh, we there were a lot of us who were big Ingram fans, and we we always swore that he was saying dirty stuff when he was when he was mumbling. <laughs> so we would tape Dan on, in the afternoons, and then we'd play him back at night, just to see if we could decipher <laughs> yeah. the nasty things he was saying. And yep. when I subsequently met his son and his daughter in law, who who both went into the radio business, it was a, it was a Great pleasure, and now I know his grandsons. Oh wow! Um, one of them who uh, goes to Berkeley, uh, so it's it's come full circle. Yep, I worked with his son Chris, right, who was a writer at, at EI at the time. I knew yeah. right at yeah. WEI. Yeah. Yep, yeah. and yeah. of course I knew right away the name Ingram, was, yeah. who his father was. <laughs> and, uh, man, yeah. what a thrill yeah. that so was! So Dan was Dan was my hero. I, yep. I, I I've I've explained to his grandchildren that they have no idea. The profound effect their grandfather had on me as a as a radio person because I I really idolized him. So did, was the school helpful in helping you find your first job? Um, yes, the, I mean the school exposed the rest of the country to me. The, the school said, you know, we don't guarantee that we'll find you a job, but but 
you know, if you send your your tape in those days yeah. uh, to radio stations in in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and upstate New York, somebody's gonna somebody's gonna, gonna want to hire you. Somebody's gonna hire you. And surely enough, that is exactly what happened. So where did you start? Well, so I started in a little town called Defiance, Ohio. <laughs> now, Defiance is uh, uh, south of Toledo, uh, west of Fort Wayne, um, uh, near Napoleon, mm-hmm. near Wasion, Ohio. Um, and it was run by a, by a guy named Glenn Thayer, who was a Westinghouse engineer and took an early retirement and took his money and said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to do this on my own. So he bought this little radio station. And Glenn, Glenn was uh, such a unique character. He, um, he and I started talking in like January. I, I, I hate to tell you what year it was, but it was, <laughs> but it was January. And we agreed that I would come out in um, probably – the early part of February. Um, in the second week in January, I think uh, my mother said, uh, so everything is all set? You're going out? She says, yeah, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Defiance, Ohio. She goes, where's that? <laughs> so I told her where it was. And she says, uh, uh, do you know what the population is? I said, no, it's just a little town. Um, and she says, who is this guy who's going to hire you? So I told her. And she said, um, did you tell him that you were not white? And, and I said, no, I didn't tell him that, and I'm, and I'm not going to. She says, you know, you, you need to tell him this. You, he needs to know. I said, why does he need to know that? I, you know, I'm, 20, I'm 20-something. I, I'm, not, I'm not even thinking in those terms. Yeah. And, and, and she says, you know, you, you better tell him because if, you, if it turns out that you go out there – and he turns out to be the world's biggest bigot, uh, you're going to have to come back here, and you won't be fit to live with. So <laughs> you have to tell him. So a week goes by because I've put this off, and two weeks go by because I'm being stubborn. <laughs> and she finally puts her foot down, and she said, you have to do it. So she sat me down, and I called Glenn, and I, I said, you know, I have something to tell you. And Glenn says, so what is it? You're, st- you're still coming out, right? I said, yeah, yeah, we're, I'm still coming out. I, so what is it? And I said, I, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to explain this to you. Um, I said, well, I, I, I am not white. He goes, you're not? I said, no. Uh, he said, so what are you? <laughs> and I think I used the word I'm colored. Mm-hmm. And he said, so what color are you? <laughs> And I said, I'm black. And he said, have you always been that way? You're just trying to be fashionable this year. (laughs) Now, Glenn and I had other issues, but that was not one of them. Glenn was this just incredible, sensitive man who hated uh, most popular music, (laughs) but ran a great radio station. And I was there. I was in Defiance for, I think, uh, two years. Now, when I met you at BZ, mm. if I remember correctly, you had come from WoWo. In Fort Wayne, yes. In Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, yes. So did you yeah. go from Defiance to, to Fort Wayne? Exactly. Went oh, from wow. Defiance to, to WoWo. Uh, again, on a whim where you, where you think, okay, um, I hear that the afternoon guy is leaving. 
the afternoon guy who I used to listen to. Mm-hmm. I thought I could do that. So <laughs> I so I called up the program director, and as it turned out, um, they had already picked the replacement for the afternoon guy. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, we have an opening overnight. This is a big fifty thousand watt radio station. You can be heard all over the country if you if you want to do this. And I <laughs> jumped at the opportunity. Yep. So I did. I did. I did that for I don't know five six years. I really loved it. They, uh, they were. I, I got to know people from all over the country. What made you decide to try for BZ? Well, um, I was the public affairs director for Wobo at the time, um, and this news gig came up at at BZ, and so they transferred me here. And I, unfortunately, I arrived in Boston just in time for busing. Oh, boy. And it made an incredible impression. I mean, I, I, I think my first my first couple of years in the city, if I had, if somebody had said, you know, hey, you want a job someplace else, I would have left. I would have left because it was nasty. Yeah. It was a different era. It was a different time yep. uh, than it is now. And, and But it turned out to be good. Turned Jerry Williams wrong. was in his heyday. Oh, my God, Jerry Williams. Wow, <laughs> yeah. seatbelts. Yeah, yes. exactly, yeah. seatbelts, yeah. but busing, too. In yeah, busing, too, yeah. 74, yeah. That's, when, yeah. that's one of the things that yeah. Jerry was really yeah. hot and heavy into. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I remember that. I mean, I, I wasn't involved in it, mm. but I remember it. Um, but let's take a couple of minutes and spend some time on a gentleman that I know we both loved and adored mm. and had a profound effect on each of us. Mm. And his name was David Finnegan. David Finnegan, right, yeah. Um, David <clears throat> was a guy who the minute I met him, I knew I would <laughs> like him. He had the magic. And he gave me three of the best years I ever had <laughs> in my entire life. I just absolutely loved him to death. Yeah. Yeah. He was different than anyone I ever worked with. Yeah. Yeah. I was very nervous about doing a political talk show because yeah. I had never done it. Yeah. I had strictly worked with Larry, yeah. but I, there was just something about David. Yeah, he was charismatic. <laughs> the yeah. late, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. David Finnegan, very, very, very sad. Yeah, he was. He was very charismatic, and and I think when he ran for mayor and he asked me to be his uh, the press secretary for his campaign, um, I. I jumped immediately. I didn't. I didn't think a second chance of it. Now, you know, at the time, uh, David was fashioning himself as the next Kevin White, yep. so he looked the part, um, and and some say he acted the part as well. Um, and, but I never regretted leaving BZ to go work for David. David I, was a profound human being. I remember. I'll, I'll I'll share two David Finnegan stories with you. Yeah. Uh, when David first started. The uh, Westinghouse people, not trying to put pressure on you or anything, yeah. said to me, you got to get a big name. you got to have a big name on the air with David. Okay. So at the time, Ronald Reagan <laughs> was in the news quite a bit. <laughs> we called his headquarters. He agreed to do the show. And it was one of these deals where you don't call him. He, he calls, calls you. you. Yeah. So yeah. it got to be like 803.15. <laughs> and I said to David, I said, hey, David. What do we do if Ronald Reagan doesn't call? And he said, I got news for you, pal. If he don't call, you're Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Never forgot that. Never forgot that. And, and the other one on a more serious note was that Thanksgiving weekend of 1981, mm. 
when Natalie Wood died mm. and mm. and drowned or mm-hmm. whatever the circumstances, yep. Yep. David went on the air on that Monday night right after Paul Harvey yeah. and did an incredible monologue mm. off the top of his head. Mm. And we got loads of calls wanting a transcript of it. And no. we said, you and know, there David, was no transcript. And there was no transcript. Yeah. But the station had to literally transcribe it yeah. so they could send it out to yeah. the, yeah. the amount of requests yeah. that they got because of, of David's incredible monologue. Right. So do you, do you remember what he said? Do you remember any specifics? Nope. Okay. All I remember is that he did it and I and knew he did it, it off the top, top of his, his head. head. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and I loved it when he did it. I thought, oh man, yeah. what a what an incredible yeah. uh, gift David had with the English language. My my story about him is his ability to absorb information. Uh, I meet political consultants now who tell me that they talk to candidates and they brief them. They say, you know, you, you're going to this meeting. You're going to be meeting these people. The issues they are interested in are X Y Z. Uh, this is our position on X, Y, Z. You know, you, you have to go through a briefing. Yep. David was the best briefer, the, the best briefee, I guess you could call him, mm-hmm. of anybody I've ever worked with. You gave him information, he processed it, and he spit it back out at you. And it, it, it was almost computer-like. And, and, his, and his ability to remember people's names was just incredible. I, even now, I can't remember a lot of people's names. And he, I'm he glad would, you remembered me. Oh, of course I remember you. <laughs> he would he would walk down Dorchester Ave, or he'd walk down Albany Street, or he'd walk down the anywhere in the South End, and you know, at half a dozen people would stop him, and he would remember each of their names. And I always marveled at that. I I can remember the political situation at the time. Mm. I remember nobody knew whether Kevin White was going to run or not. Right, and. Right. He sent a tape to all the radio and television stations yeah. with an embargo. You cannot play this before 6 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it was announced that he was not going to run. Right. And, I, and I said, oh, man, this is, <laughs> this, that's it. This is good. This is good. And it never occurred to me that anything else other than David winning mm. was going to happen. Mm. So I'm going to ask you a question I have waited 35 <laughs> years to ask. Yes. Why did David lose? Uh, David lost over a lot of things. Um, First of all, and I hinted at this in my earlier answer, um, he thought he was already the mayor. So he would would show up late for events. Um, He kept people waiting a long time. Um, I can – my personal experience with that is uh, an interview that was to be done with Channel 5 during the campaign and – they wanted it done in Charlestown so they can use Boston as the backdrop. So our headquarters was in downtown Boston by the school committee. And we had to get to Charlestown by at least 5.15 to set up and make up and all that stuff and do production before the interview started. So it's 4.30 and David's in his office and I start pressing him about, hey, it's it's time we got to go, and and he would say, you know, give me give me an extra five minutes, give me another ten minutes. I said, all right, mm-hmm. but we have to go. And he would say, give me another give me another five. I I told you, give me another five minutes. I said, all right, but we have to go. <laughs> and another five minutes would go by, 
and I'd go in and interrupt again. And he, he was he was not pleased. And he said, where, where the hell is this anyway? I said, it's in Charlestown. He goes, why is this in Charlestown? It's because, you know, they want to use it as a backdrop. Uh, they want to be, you're there, and they when they put the camera on, the city of Boston will be in the background. And he says, what time is it again? I said, well, we need to be there at least by 5.15. And he looks at me and he says, well, can I ask you this? Do you think, is it safe to say that they won't be able to do this without me? <laughs> And I, I, I was taken aback by that. I then, by then, I just backed off. I just said, okay, this, I can see the way this is going. And, and that, was, that was part of the reason that, 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 he, that he exuded um, the kind of confidence and arrogance that the city was not prepared for at the time. And so it was a, it was a, it was a complete shock. And I will, I will admit to you that I wasn't one of them, but they were people in the Finnegan campaign who were measuring um, their offices at City Hall in October before the election of that year. Yeah, I yeah. I had talked with David about going to work for him if he won the election. Absolutely. I was not prepared for him <laughs> to lose. Yeah, yeah. I was prepared for him to win. Yeah. So when you left BZ, yeah. were you mentally prepared and to say, what am I going to do if David loses? No, no, ne- never occurred. Never occurred to anybody that he would lose. Never at all. And as a matter of fact, I will tell you that even on election night, um, I was uh, so busy uh, doing doing damage control that the impact of this loss did not sink in until the next day. So, so I had a I had a, a room at the Westin. Ah. And and the next morning, uh, I opened my door to that room at five something, and somebody had shoved a Boston Globe under the under the door, and when I read it in the Globe is when it sank in that he'd lost. How did he take it? Uh, pretty badly. Yeah, he uh, he was inconsolable for a long time. Yeah, but. Because he had the visibility, he had everything. Had everything. Had raised the most money. Was ahead in the polls, um, and it's one of the reasons why I've never ever gotten that much involved in a political campaign since. Because because losing was so devastating, I can't imagine how much better winning would be. I mean, if if losing will really tears your heart out, yeah. you know, winning, well, okay. We go out and celebrate. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. And how how long did it take you to? I mean, were you worried about finding another? Because you've obviously worked other places. Yeah. W- were you worried about finding another job? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was. I was very worried about finding another job. And I, and at the time, I thought I I wanted to do television, and and went in for when several interviews for several different jobs, but. I had no experience doing television, mm-hmm. um, and I and and at the time, it, I guess I, I didn't have a fire in my belly about it. I mean, I wanted it because it was seemed like the next logical step. But I think anybody who interviewed me would know that that you know wanting to do television was not my my Forte. reason. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't want to do television. Yeah. Uh, I wanted it because it seemed like the next thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't I didn't get any of those jobs, and I wound up uh, being the PA guy for the for the uh, MBTA, 
and then uh, the Massachusetts Division of uh, Employment and Training. And then I went back to radio at WHDH with, with Ed Bell. Ah, good old Ed Bell. Yeah. Yep. Susan Warnick and I talked Ed, about him. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Good old Ed Bell. Yeah. Now, David, as I re- if I remember correctly, did a show for a while on Channel 7, hmm. uh, an hour show or a half hour show, and it was once a week. Yeah. Yeah. He, it was a public affairs uh, show at the, at the time. And, and it dealt with city issues um, uh, and some state issues as well, not so much um, national or international. But uh, yeah, he um, he he was he was a unique talent. He he could fit in so many ways. That that incredibly trained legal mind oh. was just was was good. And and he was a funny guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know. So. Yep, absolutely. Well, yeah. those that story about Ronald Reagan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was quick on the uptake. And huh? I remember once we had an author, and I I I, I won't mention his name mm. on the air, but. He showed up and he, shall we say, had done some imbibing to celebrate <laughs> his appearance on the air. And David had gone upstairs to grab something to eat or a cup mm. of coffee. And there was no way I could tell him ahead of time because we had a 10-minute break mm. that this guy was loaded. Okay. So they went on the air and David asked him a question and the author's response was, Well, David, <laughs> so-and-so in this book was a real loser. And of course, David then realized yeah, what was going on. Yeah. Got him out of the studio as quick yeah, as possible, yeah. and a lady called up and said, "David, that man sounded like he was drunk." And Finnegan <laughs> said, "Ma'am, we would never allow that kind of thing on the air here at at, at WBZ." And I just, I just roared in the That's control great. room, sure, of course, because I don't think anybody else could have handled it that yeah, way. Yeah, diplomatically got him out of there. But it's funny when you mention about him thinking, because I can remember trying to book him, mm. BZ had at that time, and I loved it, mm. A candidate, they would call it Candidates Night. Mm. And they would let the candidate come in and host an hour. Yeah. Take the phone take calls, the phone calls, read right. the commercials yeah. and everything else. Yeah. And of all the candidates, yeah. David was the hardest yes. to book. Yes, he he around the city uh, there were there, there was talk that he he didn't show up at candidates' nights, he didn't show up at any of the forums. Uh, in 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 the scuttlebutt was that David already thought he was mayor, so he didn't have to do any of those things. Just too bad. I often think back to I wonder how both of our lives would have changed if he had been mayor. Well, I think I think the city would have changed. I th- I'm not sure Boston would have changed for the better because, because in essence, the right guy won. Ray, Ray Flynn turned the city around uh, in his mayoralty, and I'm not sure that David would have. Interesting. So, so uh, there's a, you know, you, you, you have mixed feelings about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry he lost uh, personally. Uh, but I think as a city, we did all right because because Flynn Flynn yeah he did made a, a difference job. yeah yep. he yep. did a good job yeah did you stay in touch with David for a long time after I, this was I over I stayed in touch with David for for years uh, when he was still uh, a lobbyist for a um, for one of the tobacco companies I think um, and he had an office on uh, Beacon Street. And then, and then I lost, I lost touch with him. I see his brother Steve every once in a while. I see Steve downtown because he still has an office there. Uh, but I don't see any of the other brothers. I don't see John. I don't see Joe. 
Was the business still as much fun when you got back into it? Um, yes. The business in, in the 1980s, 86, 87, at HDH was good. I mean, we, uh, I, I was telling somebody the other day that uh, HDH sent me to both Democratic and Republican national conventions, uh, the Dukakis one in uh, Atlanta and, and, and the George Bush one um, in Houston. Um, and it was it was it was good. It was, I you know, in those days, um, news still mattered on the radio. So, <laughs> so companies um, spent money. Uh, they, we had state house reporters. Yep, I can remember Jerry Williams being at some of the conventions right. too. Yeah. Um, now there's there's another question. You yeah. were not involved in the campaign. But why do you think Mike Dukakis lost? Because I would have loved <laughs> I tried to get involved in his campaign, but they never returned phone calls. Well, uh, you know, Duk why Dukakis lost is, 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 is a fascinating story. Um, too much details to go into now. But let me give you an example. I think two weekends before that election with George Bush, Michael Dukakis was still governor of Massachusetts, and he was campaigning out in the western part of the state. And I remember it being a Sunday afternoon, watching the news, and he's campaigning in, I don't know, Greenfield or, you know, someplace like that. And I am screaming at the television from my couch, <laughs> like, aren't there people in Iowa and Nebraska and, yeah, yeah. that you should be seeing? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that particular thing had anything to do with it, but um, it was it, it could have it could have gone the other way, but I, I don't think the com country was ready for him. I can still remember when, as Gary LaPierre put it to me, Dukakis was the voice of God during the blizzard <laughs> of '78. Yeah, and yeah. He, and he lost to Ed King. Yeah, and somebody said to him, "What happened? How yeah. come you lost?" And yeah. he said. The snow melted. <laughs> yeah. Although he has a good life now. Yeah, he He's, does. He, yep. spends, he spends his winters in California teaching, I think, at UC Berkeley. And he spends summers here, and he teaches at Northeastern. Yep. I Life's had a, good. He was, a, he was at City Hall a couple of years ago. Mm. I don't know uh, who got him to come, mm -hmm. but I went and saw him, mm. and uh, he remembered me, mm. and uh, he seemed in pretty good shape, and it was great seeing him. He's mm. got a great voice. Yes, he does. And he's a, he's a great speaker. Yeah, and still does after all these years. Yeah. He's, he's getting up there, but he's still, he's still good at what he does. And you are still a new, uh, to quote the program, yes. a news junkie. Oh God, yes. Oh, I I consume an awful lot of news. I I read at least four newspapers a day. Um, I read um, and I watch an awful lot of MSNBC, huh. and I watch an awful lot of BBC uh, World News, um, which I find to be the best thing on for cable news. <laughs> um, and, and it just, it, I, you, you, you couldn't make up the stuff that's happening now. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't, if you, if you sat down with Alan Sorkin to try to write this, <laughs> everybody would say you're crazy. This is, this is incredible what's happening. Mm -hmm. So my next question to yes. you is there room for another news radio station in Boston? Um, well, if, if, if there is, 
it can't be in the same uh, line of thinking that we have now. Um, Van Gordon Sauter, who used to be a CBS, CBS yes, guy, I know that name, um, uh, was I think responsible for for uh, coming up with the idea that news ought to turn a profit, that news ought to be a revenue source, and. And to my way of thinking, news, it can't do that. It, it's, it's good if, if it does, but it can't be its reason for being. It, 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 news, you know, there's a reason why the FCC, um, your public license, if you have a public license for a radio station, doesn't say anything about making money. <laughs> it says you have this license to serve the public interest. Now, if you make money, bully for you. But you don't necessarily have to make money. And I think we have to keep going back to that now as a, as a base, that, that news is such a commodity, uh, such a precious commodity, that it cannot be monetized. But that's what's happening. If you listen to, and now you can do this, mm-hmm. listen to other stations, news stations around the country, mm-hmm. like a WTOP in, in Washington. DC, right or a KCBS in San Francisco, mm-hmm. or, or WCBS in, in New York, York. Yeah. they are different than the way that WBZ yes. does their news. Yes, they are. Yes, and they are. they're good at it. Uh, yeah, except, except the people who work there tell me <clears throat> they feel like they're in a, in a constant push them towards the Internet, push them towards the Internet. That's, they feel that they're constantly doing that instead of news. Hmm. So so they're they're telling their listeners, you know, if you want more information, go to the internet. Go to the internet. Go to the internet. Oh, that's wow. that's what you do. Now, there's an a news explosion at yeah. least here in Boston. Mm-hmm. I mean, first it was the eye opener at 6 o'clock. Yeah. Then it was 5:30. Yeah. Then it's 5 o'clock. Now it's 4:30. Same thing with with WBZ TV. Yeah. And, and Channel 7 in the afternoon. They start their news at 4 o'clock. Yeah, but, but the question is, are you getting more news or are you just getting more exposure to the same six stories? I think that's BZ's problem, okay. at least on the radio. Yeah, because that's my problem with, with all this. You know, Yes, we, we start our news at 4.30, but if I watch your news at 4.30 and I watch your news at 5.30 and 6.30, it's, the same. You know, it's all the same. Yep. It's, as a matter of fact, sometimes it's the same package. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so are you getting more? I, I'm not so sure. And I think we need more. I mean, this is, this is, this is the case where you need information. It's not, it's not like if you don't know stuff, that'll be a, that'll be a benefit to you. No, <laughs> you need to know stuff. What does it do to you as a person when every time you hear a news story, someone is accused of sexual harassment? Yeah, it's um, like a Matt Lauer. Yeah, yeah. I, well, less moon vets. You know, I, I keep I keep thinking about some of these guys, and every once in a while, uh, you know, you and I have been in the radio business. Yep. So we know what it's like. We know what men and women have said to each other in this business for. Decades. <laughs> um, what I don't understand is the is the is the kind of crudeness of the of the allegations against, especially people like Lauer. 
yeah. you know, you, you you lock the door and yeah. and 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 then you drop your pants. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Why not help and send her some flowers? Uh, send her a box of candies. I I don't know. Uh, what happened to romance? What happened to wooing? What uh, you know? It, it, it's not to say that that you're not attracted to people. Of course, we're attracted to each other. That's the way it's meant to be. But but the crudeness of it, the 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 absolute you know power, and and I and I guess um, advocates of the Me Too movement will tell you that that that's the point. That it's it is about power. It's not really about sex, and and so so I'm really surprised. I haven't heard uh, all the allegations against Moonves yet, uh, although I can't imagine that they are any less. Uh, the allegations against Charles Charles de Troyes, who was the uh, conductor of the Montreal Symphony, are just head scratching, and Lauer. Um, yeah, I and, still can't get over that. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. And and Charlie um, Charlie Rose Charlie Rose at, at, over at CBS. Yep. yep. So. All right. I don't know how to exactly put this, but sometimes guys don't work yeah. in different time slots. Yes. I mean, when Larry Glick was at WBZ, yeah. to quote the gentleman from the Beachcomber, yeah. he owned Midnight, <laughs> but putting. Larry Glick on WHGH, yeah. and I think when you were there, well, I was there, yeah, at ten o'clock in the morning, yeah, it, yeah. it just, just didn't make it. It's not, it's not the right, it's not the right fit. Didn't make it. It's not the right didn't fit. Didn't make it. Now, having said that, I, I would have taken a chance because my sense is that Glick works anywhere. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, I remember thinking. Uh, when he when he was put on at ten, you know, how's he how's he going to do all that? All the bits that he does. Yep. Uh, uh, to this day, uh, people are surprised when I tell them what the Larry Glick salute really is, <laughs> because for years they just heard it. They didn't. They didn't know. What they it didn't was. know what it was. Yep. And 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 so so when they when they hear it now, it's like, oh, that's what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I I remember when they put Larry on on BZ from mm. eight to midnight, mm. and all we would get would be. Little kids calling at eight o'clock at night saying, "Hey, Larry, can you play such and such for recording?" There you go. Yeah. And Larry would get upset and he'd say, "You know, why are you giving me these calls?" And I said, "Larry, that's all we got. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all, all there is. We got. That's all there is." Um, but but Larry was a, a, an incredible person. I uh, to, uh, the way he went out his last years were just wonderful because I remember meeting him shortly before he moved to Florida. And I said, you know, so what are you going to do? And he goes, uh, you know, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to just uh, be a maitre d at a restaurant somewhere, and 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 that's exactly what he did. Went yeah. down to Florida. Uh, went, a friend, I, I didn't go to the restaurant, but I know people who did, who said they'd walk in and they, and this man, exquisitely dressed, oh would yeah, greet them at the door, shake their hands, show them to their seats. And I thought, what a way to go! That's yeah. that's nice. Yep, that's nicely done. Yep, and two thumbs up to you, Mister Glick. I can remember him. One of the things that made him leave WHGH was they wanted him to sell his own time, mm. and he didn't mm. want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I can still remember his last night on the air. He was giving away T-shirts, and he said. <laughs> What to win a T-shirt? What do Johnny Carson and I have in common? Yeah. And somebody called up and said 
You've both been married four times. <laughs> and, and Larry said, well, that's not exactly what I had, had in mind. mind. But nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was that they both retired. Yeah. But, yeah. but Larry was funny. Larry was unique. Yeah. Larry could read the National Enquirer, and I could break up. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. He was, he was an incredible man. Tell me about and a great talent. Tell me about working at, at WRK. Did you work with Howie Carr? Yes. I How worked you, with Howie Carr uh, until I left. He's I, still there. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. if I got paid what he did, I'd still be there, too. <laughs> How did you like Howie Carr? Well, uh, Howie and I were, um, well, politically, obviously, not simpatico. So, yeah. so that was – but I, I think Howie when, – when my feelings towards Howie changed – because, because you know, this is a guy who went to uh, to Duke, North Carolina. So you know, and he graduated with honors. So he's not he's not what he pretends to be. He knows he knows better. Uh, and I thought, you know, here's a guy who's just he's 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 doing this because this is how you make a living. Yep. And then uh, he started uh, making noises about uh, decertifying our union. Um, after had been. 60 years at RKO mm -hmm. um, and had uh, put many a kid through college and and had supported many a family. And I couldn't understand why somebody with a multi-million dollar contract would want to take that union protection away from people who didn't have a multi-million dollar contract. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was that was probably the beginning of the end between him and I. I had a I have a had a tough time. Um, adjusting to him after that. I didn't see his radio act in the same way again. One of the great caveats, I think, of being in the radio business is being able to meet celebrities. Mm. I mm. loved it. Mm. I mean, I have stories up the you-know-what <laughs> from being at BZ because those were the days when every television station yeah. had their own talk shows. Yeah. Yeah. And people would come in yeah, I, I mean, I can remember walking in the lobby and running into Jane Fonda. Yeah. And uh, one day I wound up talking to a lady, and finally I said, I should know who you are, and yeah. I don't. Yeah. So please tell me. Yeah. And, and it was Marlo said, Thomas. Oh, jeez. Oh. So I'm curious as to what memories and good memories you have of different celebrities that you might have uh, rubbed elbows with. Well, I, uh, I think during the uh, the Carter presidential years, um, he used to come through Boston a lot, and we had and him twice. You had it, yeah. So, so he would he would come through. And what I what I remember most about those years is the the Secret Service guys who used to line that long hallway yeah. between yep. the studios and the and and they all had these little earpieces. And I and I can still remember walking the hallway while he's being interviewed by by David or whoever was on, um, and walking up to get water at the water fountain. <laughs> and there's a Secret Service guy standing there, and, and I would look at him, and I said, uh, man, you got to have a hearing problem to work in your organization, huh? <laughs> nothing. Not even a smile, not a smirk, nothing. He gave, and I, I, I drank my water, and I walked away. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yep, I can, re I can relate a similar story. We had a John Anderson, who was a political candidate. Right, yep. And... You'd walk down the hallway, and there was this mass of humanity, mm. and you knew it. Mm. And they just stood there. They just stood, yeah. And, yeah. They never said anything. And and there was a lady that was in the control room 
who sat there with a machine gun on mm. her lap. Oh, my God. And I said to her, what would you do if somebody got past all those people yeah. and came in here? And yeah. she very calmly said, I'd have to blow them up. Said, oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I, I can't. I was trying to think of a celebrity um, who came through BC when I was there. But I, off the top of my head. Other than Carter, I mean, uh, other than Carter, Carter was there yeah. twice. Yeah, yeah, and I, I got I to meet him Car- both both I times. Carter he was being there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was he was great. Yeah, because the the Secret Service just they like cleared the hallway, and you couldn't you couldn't yep. get to the bathroom. You couldn't <laughs> couldn't get a drink of water because these guys are all standing around with earpieces. What do you like to watch now, as far as entertainment or talk shows or celebrities or whatever? You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna believe this. Try me because people. People, when I say this, people blanch. I love TMZ. And the reason I love TMZ is there are very few places these days that are teaching young people real journalism. That, that, that this is how you get the story. This, these are the questions you ask. These are the, ans- these are the answers that you listen for. And this is how you present this story once you've done all that. And there, there are not a whole lot of places teaching that anymore. What we have are pretty people on television <laughs> doing the, you know, as you can see, yeah, the, the, the fire siren is going. And as you can see, the police tapes here, or mm-hmm. as you can see. Or, or, you know, television, I think, gets to be easy to do or easier to do because you have pictures. And if you don't know how to be a journalist without pictures— it it gets tough because you have to you have to then do something other than just point the camera. Mm-hmm. So so TMZ won me over. I started watching it because it's irreverent and it's and and they do it about celebrities, which is nothing. So so that's that's even better. So one day I'm 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 watching and my wife and I have for the last thirty years gone to Barbados the first two weeks in March. Ah, uh, every year. And we love it down there. Uh, and Rihanna is from Barbados. So so <clears throat> the TMZ story was about Rihanna going to the White House when Barack Obama was president. And the TMZ reporter asked Rihanna, so what was it, what was your most memorable moment in the White House with the president? And she said, oh, it was wonderful to see my black president. And somebody in the TMZ pool said, well, she doesn't, she doesn't have a president. She's, she's Barbadian. She has a prime minister. And up popped the picture of Froondale Stewart, who was then the prime minister of Barbados. And I sat there and I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be, let's say, three and a half million people watching this show. I'm sure that there are only two of us, <laughs> if that, who know <laughs> – who the real prime minister of Barbados is. And TMZ put the right guy up. And I thought, you know, these people know what they're doing. They don't play around. Now, to the best of my recollection, you have not had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) You have not had to work from midnight to 5 and be there at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So with those kind of conditions, what made you decide you didn't want to do this business anymore? Well, actually, I think the business walked away from me rather than me walking away from the business. 
in 2006, uh, RKO decided to disband its news department completely. So a, a whole bunch of us were, were let go. Um, I took it as an opportunity to go try and do something that I always wanted to do and, and, and didn't feel like I had, had the nerve to go do, and that is to get in to be a classical music disc jockey. Mm-hmm. So I went to the folks at the CRB and said to them, hey, you know, um, I, I'm game for this. And, and as it turned out, they were looking for somebody to do Tanglewood ah. um, on Friday night and Saturday night. So I did Tanglewood for that season, the 2007 season, live uh, for two nights and then came home on Sunday. And Ron De La Chiesa did it on Sunday. Another one of my heroes. And, and I, I loved it. It was a great experience. And, and I also was a disc jockey at CRB. And then in 2009, uh, GBH bought CRB, and the same thing happened again. The whole staff was let go, mm. um, at which point, now what am I going to do? And I was fiddling around trying to think of what I wanted to do. And I got a call from a woman named Jake Carger. I don't know if you know Jake. Jake nope. uh, was the general manager of KISS. For years and years and years. And Jake and my wife are friends. And Jake calls me, and she's now a radio consultant. Uh-huh. This is 2009, 2010. She calls me up and she says, um, do you still read four newspapers a day? And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> she goes, I've got the perfect gig for you. I said, well, what is it? She goes, I can't tell you. But, but I want you to call this guy. And this guy is, is in Melbourne, Australia. And I said, all right. Uh-huh. So, so if, um, you know, being the procrastinator I am, I put it off for six, seven, eight days. And Jake calls me back and she goes, have you called him yet? I go, no, no, call him, call him. So I called him and the guy said to me, well, Jake tells me you read four newspapers a day. We have two radio stations in South Africa. One is in Johannesburg and one is in Cape Town. They do a thing called The Crossing uh, in which they go to a correspondent in in Paris, in London, in New York, in Amsterdam, in Ecuador, in wherever, and we want you to be the guy in Boston. And I said, when when would I do this? And they go, well, we want you to start on the weekends. So Friday night, I would get a call at 11.15. It's 5.15 in the morning, their time. And we would talk about whatever is going on in the U.S., Politically, culturally, uh, economically, whatever the big stories are, we'd talk about two, three, four of them. And the conversation would last maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then they'd replay it throughout the whole weekend. And that was just fantastic. <laughs> that, was, that was just like the fitting end because it kept me, it kept me in the news, yep. but I didn't have to be really absorbed by it. And, and that, was, then that was how it ended. Uh, and then I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm better off. Uh, All right. Then with that in mind, what is your strongest takeaway or greatest memory that you will always cherish in the business? Oh. Mine, mine is sitting next to Raymond Burr. <laughs> you know, in the hotel and saying, if God could sound like this, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, and had money, he'd be okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's, that's one of, of mine. my business. That the, the, the business has changed so much. Oh, yeah. Um, in the last mm, 10 years, 
Um, that well, I guess I guess I worry that that radio as we know it is changing so rapidly that the technology is changing yeah. so rapidly. But what I don't understand is why isn't technology being made to work for us? In other, I see this. We're living in 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 now the twenty first century, and people are still working as if we are back in the 1930s and 40s. People still have to commute to work. They still have to sit at a desk for yeah. eight hours, 10 hours, however long. Yeah. Um, why, isn't, why isn't all this, this technology working in our favor whereby we can work from home? Now, you know, people who who don't like that idea say, well, if people work from home, they'll goof off. Well, I think it'll be, I think it'll be obvious. <laughs> if you work from home and you goof off, everybody's going to know it quickly. Yep. So, so, I mean, I don't, I don't see that as a, as a deterrent. Would you still recommend if people come to you and say, I want to get into broadcasting? No. I'd say, I'd say get into uh, animal husbandry, <laughs> uh, find an environmental crusade that you want to you know, get into politics, do, do almost anything uh, because, because I assume this business is going to get better in the long run, but in the long run is a long way off. I don't, I don't see a model um, for, for sustainability uh, for news if it, if it is just part of another revenue generating um, part of a corporation and and having uh, non-local ownership uh, the late the late Chet Curtis uh, uh. told me once he said you know uh, if 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 the guy who owns the TV station the radio station lives in his town if he goes to the Harvard Club, if he goes to Trinity Church, if he goes to wherever in town, uh, he's going to meet his peers, and they're going to say to him, uh, you know, I like what you did last night, or why the bleep did you put that on last <laughs> night? Or he goes, if he is some mindless corporation somewhere in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or California, they don't care what they put on, just as long as those bottom line look good every quarter. And that's all you survive. You survive by a quarter. If you if if you can't do well this quarter, we're not going to hold you to see if you can do well the next quarter. You're done. You're gone. So so I I have this feeling that that short term uh, ethos is going to continue into into the distant future. So it's not going to get better. I I have two sides of technology. Mm. I th I think as a sports fan. Mm. I'm thrilled that I can sit at home mm. and listen to John Miller in San Francisco yeah. do a ball game yeah. with FM quality. Yes. I love that. Right. But on the other hand, I am very disturbed by this consultation at the mound is brought to you by <laughs> the keys to the game is brought to you by yeah. the starting lineups yeah. are brought to you yeah. by. Yeah. And I remember the days when yeah. – at the bottom of every inning in baseball, mm. they give you the scoreboard. Right. Now they don't they, do that they anymore. Don't because there's no time. And I, I, I kind of resent that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of resent that. And and you don't you don't really realize it. It it kind of creeps up on you. Exactly. It doesn't it doesn't just hit you over the head. It just it just it, and then suddenly you realize, oh my God, they don't have a scoreboard anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in closing, is there is there anything profound that you would like to say profound. to our? Profound. Oh my God, no! Yeah. I, I can't. Don't, be, I don't use big words I like that can't very be often. Profound. <laughs> I, I've spent my whole life not being profound. You're one of the most profound individuals I've ever <laughs> known in my life, Listo. The 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 most profound thing I will say, and I'll repeat, this is this is what I said at my um, Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and I told this story about our very tall Republican governor Charlie Baker, and his. Um, and his uh, Secretary of Housing and I think Urban Development is her title, Crystal Cornegay. Um, Baker says that when he was running, he, um, he went to a couple of candidates' forums. And one of the ones he went to was in Dorchester. It was on housing. Uh, they talked for a long time, and he gave his usual campaign pitch. And at the end of the forum, Crystal uh, came up and gave him her card and said, listen, if you really want to talk about housing, uh, give me a call sometime. And like every other politician, he t- took the card, slipped it in his jacket pocket, and, you know, was going to forget about it. Uh, a few weeks later, he was down, uh, had a lull in his schedule, found himself in Dorchester, fished for the card, and went to her office. And, and he describes, and then they, they both tell this story, so I know where it's coming from. Uh, he says they were very surprised to find a tall, white Republican person in this building in Dorchester. And he asked for Crystal, and she showed up, and they bonded. Uh, they talked about housing for hours. Um, after he was elected, this was his first run for governor, this was his second run for governor, uh, he was elected, and he asked Crystal Cornegay to be in his cabinet. And she accepted, having never been in government before. And the moral they both take away from this is always show up and always say yes. <laughs> always show up and always say yes. You never know where it might lead. And I'm glad you decided to do both and come <laughs> in here and do this interview. My you pleasure. are a remarkable My human pleasure. being. I will treasure our friendship My and pleasure. glad that we had the chance to work together. And uh, hopefully I'll run into you I hope so. somewhere else soon. I hope so. Take My care pleasure. of yourself. Thank you. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody.